At some point in our lives, most likely, we all learn to ride a bicycle. The usual way to gain that skill is to attach training wheels to the rear axle of the bike, and then you ride for a time with those training wheels until you get the feel of riding a two-wheeler and you take those training wheels off. The training wheels that during the time of learning to ride are an important safety net. And they keep the learner from falling off the bike as he or she is beginning to ride. And no one really thinks it odd to see a young child with training wheels on their bicycle. But everyone would think it weird to see a teenager who knows how to ride a two-wheeler with the training wheels still on. You see, there's a time for training wheels, and there's a time for removed training wheels. And the law of God, the Mosaic law, read of in Exodus 20 and other parts, of course, of the Old Testament, the law of God acts like training wheels. The law facilitates, enables us to come into a total sufficiency found in Christ. A total sufficiency found in Jesus Christ. Savior, Lord, who alone, Jesus alone, kept all of the Old Testament law 100% of the time, something that none of us could ever do. And once you come to Christ by faith and receive grace, salvation, the precious Holy Spirit of God to be resident within you as a believer forever, this makes the riding possible means the Spirit of God has come really to be the rider of your bike. It makes the taking off of the training wheels of the law prudent, but not only prudent and necessary. And thus, in this metaphor, it is totally non-productive and in fact frustrating if we somehow reattach the training wheels of our spiritual lives to be a method, we think, of being pleasing to God and standing before God justified. Now that we're saved, we don't need the law to hold our bicycles up. We have a fully capable rider with us in our lives, the Spirit of God, to empower godly, righteous Christian living and to give us the ability to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. That's the precious work and power of the Holy Spirit. Last time we were in Romans 7, 1 to 6, if you'd like to turn to Romans. Romans 7, verses 1 to 6 were our text last Sunday. And in those verses, Romans 7, 1 through 6, we saw a fact. And by way of review, the fact that we saw is that believers in Jesus Christ are disengaged from the law because we are joined with Jesus and he has fulfilled all of the law. Last time, we looked at the fact of sanctification in the first six verses of Romans 7. Namely, the fact is that in the mind and will of God, you as a born-again Christian have been disengaged from the law, in favor of being engaged with Christ in you, the hope of glory, engaged with the Holy Spirit of God, come to live in you as a redeemed child of God, disengaged from the one and engaged to the other. And so the fact, again, from last week, you, believer, 
You believer who's a week old in Christ, you a believer who's a hundred years old in Christ, you believer, fact, you are disengaged from the law by God's design. And now our passage for this morning is about how we can volunteer to struggle with the law of sin and death and its downward pull on us as Christians down into acts of sinning. We've said before that sin singular in the New Testament is the law of sin and death, that gravitational pull down into acts of sinning that we're all subject to. But we talked about in a previous sermon, the end of chapter 6, that like that airplane bound from Nassau to Boston can take off even though the law of gravity continues to pull it down to the tarmac here in Nassau when there's enough engine thrust, enough aerodynamic positioning of the flaps of the wings, and enough power, then the law of aerodynamics overrules the law of gravity. So we are living the Christian life with the Spirit of God living within us, and we still have the downward pull, as it were, of the law of sin and death. But Christ in you, the hope of glory, the Spirit of God resident within you, gives us power to fly even over the downward pull of the law of sin and death. And one of the ways that we can make a mistake in Christian living is to somehow put ourselves back under the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, as a means to make God love us. We're going to look at the character of God's law in this message. Principally, that's what the focus of this message is. It's based on Romans 7, 7 to 14. And these verses are about a very real danger for all Christians, which is the likelihood of putting ourselves back into law-keeping as our supposed basis for justification. These verses, 7 to 14 of chapter 7 of Romans, are saying, watch it. Don't put yourselves back into a mindset that keeping the law is your supposed basis for being declared innocent by holy God. Or put another way, Our passage for today presents a shame that we can find in our sanctified process. The fact that we're disengaged from the law is a fact in verses 1 to 6. The shame we're going to see this morning in verses 7 to 14 is that we can live as though that fact isn't a reality. And that would be a shame. And so I'm going to read our passage. It's 7 to 14 of Romans 7, as I have been stating. Listen to the word of God. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which I was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. That through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, 
but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Friends, when we attempt to live the Christian life in our own smarts or in our own strength or in our own resources, we are really choosing to live like we are under the law. And when we attempt to live the Christian life somehow reforming ourselves, somehow trying harder, somehow working at earning brownie points in heaven, somehow attempting to perform certain religious rituals to be somehow more loved and more accepted by God. When we do those things and other things, then we are re-engaging ourselves in the law again, which will lead to great frustration. So please hear me. The shame of Romans 7, 7 to 14 is the disappointing fact that many true Christians decide to re-engage themselves with the law that Jesus disengaged them from when he fulfilled it for them. Now this re-engagement with the law as a basis for almost self-justification and self-sanctification, this reattachment, re-engagement with the law that we can do as born-again Christians is really as easy as falling off of a log. Ever tried to stand on a log? It's so easy to fall off. And it's so easy for us to re-engage ourselves with God's law, thinking that if we can just re-engage ourselves with God's law, that we'll make ourselves acceptable to God. But Jesus made us acceptable to God. This tendency we have, all of us have, to re-engage with the law, we almost don't even have to think about it. It's a default position. It's the position to choose to reattach ourselves to the weight belt of religious duties and performances so as to somehow please God. For example, now listen carefully and listen to everything I'm saying here. For example, attending church and witnessing and giving financially and praying and fellowshipping with other believers. Of course, all of these things are good but they are not cold, wooden performance hoops that we are to jump through so as to get more of God's attention or love. Do you hear what I said? It's not that tending church, witnessing Christ, giving financially, praying, or fellowshipping with other believers are wrong things. They're perfectly right things. But if you base how you understand your acceptance by God in those things, then you have a problem. All of these things, attending church and witnessing and giving financially and praying and fellowshipping with other believers, all of these things are wonderful spiritual disciplines. And as such, they're good. All of these things God never meant for us to be involved in, to be some cold, wooden, lifeless, performance-based acceptance kind of hoops that he wants us to jump through and then, oh, I'll love her more now. We have God's attention, grace, mercy, and love in fullest measure when we have Christ. When God looks at you as a believer, he sees you robed in Christ's righteousness, accepted in the beloved, 
Nothing you could do would cause him to love you more than he already does. And nothing you could do would cause him to love you less. That's grace. And we live out of grace. We live out of Christ-based acceptance with God. We don't live out of performance-based acceptance with God. And these things of attending church like we are this morning and witnessing Christ to lost people and giving cheerfully financially to the ministries of this church and praying and fellowshipping with other believers, all of these things are joyous disciplines. They are not loveless to-do lists. They are not loveless to-do lists. These are not loveless to-do lists that somehow barge into our fellowship with God as he seated us at his table. Revelation 3.20. It's principally not a salvation verse because it was written to believers in an ancient church. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. Jesus wants to fellowship with you at the dining room table that he set up after you were saved. And that fellowship is based on his fulfillment of God's law and then him giving us his righteousness. And then we live a thank you kind of life out of Jesus' righteousness and sure standing with God. We live a thank you kind of life. And that thank you kind of life back to God involves attending church. It involves witnessing. It involves giving financially. It involves praying. It involves fellowshipping with other Christians. But these are not the engine. These are the caboose. The engine is Christ's work for us, completed on the cross, as evidenced by an empty tomb of resurrection. And now we do not have to perform to be loved by God. We have to receive that acceptance in Christ and then live a thank you kind of life. And so attending church and witnessing and giving financially and praying and fellowshipping, they're privileges. Huge privileges that are rooted in tremendous, vast, divine grace. And that divine grace, by definition, involves the blood-bought child of God, son or daughter of God, growing. Growing an everlasting relationship with the Savior, a living God. And these spiritual disciplines are not to be done in order to somehow promote God loving us. He's proven he loves us. You can ask Jesus, how much do you love me, Jesus? And you can see his hands on the cross, his wounds bleeding, and he would say, I love you this much. And so I've told you before, but it helps me. If God had a wallet, your picture would be in his wallet. My kids' pictures are in my wallet, not because they perform to a certain level, but because of my relationship with them and I love them. If God has a wallet and you're saved, then figuratively speaking, your picture is in God's wallet. And these wonderful spiritual disciplines are privileges of relationship which are to be done with grateful, loving response. Nobody should be putting money on the plate and saying, ah. Nobody should be going into a ministry and saying, it's my duty. No, it's your privilege. It's your privilege. Now, our Christian lives are to be lived out 
thank you notes to God. And in sharp contrast, our Christian lives are never to be, because I performed for you, God, you give me dot, dot, dot. And so please mark it down that that kind of living where you tell God with a bit of a chip on your shoulder, like the prodigal's brother, his older brother had a chip on his shoulder, when you say to God, because I performed for you, God, you owe me this. That really is Christian manipulation of God, and it doesn't work. And so the shame we're seeing in verses 7 to 14 of Romans 7 is the shame of do-it-yourself sanctification. The shame of DYI Sanctification. Believers, the Christian life is not Home Depot. You can do it. We can help. We can't do it. We can't walk holy in ourselves. We can't walk thankful in ourselves. We can't do it. So God gave us the Holy Spirit at the point of conversion so he would do it through us, so he would express the life of Jesus Christ through us, so he would produce joy and obedience and gratefulness and eagerness to serve the risen king. Oh, it's not Home Depot. You can do it. We can help. No, it isn't. We can't do it. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit can help our sanctification. And so the shame again, to state it again, the shame of sanctification as presented in Romans 7, 7 to 14, is the shame of fighting the principle of sin, the law of sin and death, apart from the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. You heard about the fella who lived in Pennsylvania who had a lot of trees to fell in the fall. This time of the year up there, they're cutting down dead trees to make them into firewood, and they've done that the year before, and they've dried the wood. They can burn it this uh, winter to keep them warm. You heard about the guy in Pennsylvania who went uh, back to the Home Depot where he bought his chainsaw and all of his hands were bandaged from this tip of this finger to his elbow. And he said, do you have anything that undoes, do it, undoes do it yourself? There are a lot of people walking around with bandaged arms because they've tried to live the Christian life themselves. This passage calls us to undo the DUII sanctification, to stop trying to declare yourself separated and set apart for God in your own efforts, in your own smarts, your own resources. we got to undo do-it-yourself sanctification. There was another fellow, still with the chainsaw. He bought this chainsaw at Home Depot, and he was gone about two days. He came back to the customer service desk at the store, and he said, this thing doesn't cut wood for beans. I worked at it two Saturdays now, and I barely cut anything. It doesn't work. I like my money back. The clerk said, well, that seems odd. Let's put it on the floor over here. Primed it. <laughs> Customer said, what's that noise? <laughs> We've been given a working chainsaw in this metaphor. And some of us are trying to cut wood without even running the engine. It's tiring. It's really tiring. And so, the Lord graciously has provided the believer with the undo-it-yourself sanctification kit. The undo-it-yourself sanctification kit. Here's what's in the kit. 
Christ's total fulfillment of the Old Testament law. The Holy Spirit permanently living inside you as a believer. Prayer access to God's throne of grace, to God's heart, and to God's mind, and to God's power, 24-7, 365. Why? This kit for undo-it-yourself sanctification includes God's amazing grace. The grace for justification, the grace for sanctification, the grace for glorification, but there's more. This undo-it-yourself sanctification kit provided you by God gives you a brand new identity. A brand new identity. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things passed away. Behold, new things have come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And so this, my friends, is a wonderful, magnificent, more than adequate, undo-it-yourself kit for Christian living. Christ's fulfillment of the law, Holy Spirit indwelling you, prayer access to God, grace of God, and a brand new identity. It's a beautiful, perfect, self-contained, undo-it-yourself sanctification kit for you if you're saved. And so what a terrible shame it is if a believer turns away from that kit to re-engage with the law. It's like putting the chainsaw down, saying the blessed thing doesn't work, and you've never pulled the start cord of the Holy Spirit. Now, does this mean, what I'm saying about the Old Testament law, does this mean that God's Old Testament law is somehow flawed or bad? (laughs) Not at all. Let me show you why. Let's look at the character of God's Old Testament law. That's the rest of this sermon. Let's look at the character of God's Old Testament law. There are five things about it in this text. First, the law of God is useful. Verse 7, Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And now the strongest negative in Greek. May it never be. God forbid. No way. What shall we say then? Is the law sin that may it never be? On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So in the first place in your outlines, the law is useful. And the law is useful because it reveals our sin. Or put another way, the law is useful because it sets the proper standard. There was a little boy who was home with his mommy while his older siblings were off to school, and she was getting the lunch ready, and the little guy comes wandering from a back bedroom and says, Mommy, I am seven feet tall. You're seven feet tall? How'd you get that? He pulls out a six-inch ruler, and he shows, he measures himself with a six-inch ruler. That's what we want to do. When we don't let the law of God do its job, the useful job of pointing out the standard high enough of God's holiness, then we pick a six-inch ruler and we say, well, I'm better than her, six inches. I'm certainly better than him, six-inch ruler. The law is useful because the law reveals our sin, and the law is useful because it sets the proper standard. The law is like an MRI machine. If you have something going on in your side of you and they order an MRI, that magnetic resonant 
imaging tool will show the doctor in cross sections what's going on inside of you. And the law of God is like that. It's useful. It tells you what's going on inside of you that other people may or may not see, but it doesn't, the law doesn't operate on that problem. Grace operates on that problem. The cross operates on that problem. Jesus operates on that problem. The Holy Spirit operates on that problem. But don't miss it. The law is useful because it reveals our sin and sets the standard high enough. The Old Testament law of God teaches sinners like all of us God's standards. And the Old Testament law of God reveals that none of us can measure up to that standard because all we have are six-inch rulers when we measure ourselves. Thus, the law of God is useful. But secondly, the law of God is active. It's not dormant. It's not benign. It's not lifeless. It's active. The law of God is active. Verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. If you don't are mindful of the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, then you think you're all right. <laughs> but when you come to grips with the Ten Commandments given to Israel and by extension carried forward into the New Testament, when you come to grips with the law of God, you find that law is active in your mind and conscience. And because we have a flesh and a sin nature still, the law is active in us in the sense that the law provokes us. It provokes us because of our problem to sinning. Verse 8, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment, that's the law, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Now watch, listen carefully. This little phrase here in verse 8, taking opportunity, See it? Taking opportunity. It comes from a Greek verb, which means to set up military operations. To set up a military base of operations. And sin, the law of sin and death, takes up military command post in you and me. And sin, again singular, that is the law of sin and death, takes the opportunity, sets up a military base of operations within you by way of the commandment, the law. And yes, the law is active. It provokes sinning. Wait, wait on it. It provokes sinning because we are sinners. Nothing wrong with the law. It's all on us. The law is active because we have a sin nature. Grant Howard said, when you go on a stringent diet, the knowledge of what you can eat awakens an insatiable desire to have all the things you can't. Right? When we go on diets to lose weight, it only makes us more hungry for things we're not supposed to have. Our sin nature when coupled with the good, useful, and active law of God, it, it promotes in our flesh sinning. Not the law's problem, our problem. So we're seeing the two characteristics so far of God's holy law is that it's useful and that it's active, but there's a third thing. The law is holy. The law is holy. That makes sense because only a holy God Omni-holy God, all-holy God, all that he could ever give to Israel is a holy law. He's a holy God. So the law he gives is a holy law. Verses 9 to 12. 
vast majority of this passage today. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me, for sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Oh yes, God's law is holy because God is holy and he gave us a holy law. The problem is not with the law. Holy births holy. Holy God birthed a holy law. A holy God cannot simply put together a less than a holy set of laws. And the fact is that God's holy law reveals and proves God's holy character. He is a holy God who is given a holy law. God is without error, so he cannot breathe out a Bible that has error. That's inspiration. In the same way, God is holy, so he could not give anything unholy by way of his law when he gave it first to Moses. And so, given that all of God's law is holy, who does the law judge? Who does the law condemn? Uh, That's easy. That would be everybody. God's holy law judges all of us because we're all sinners. God's holy law condemns all of us if we're not in Christ because we are sinners. Every human being ever born to date, every human being being born today in the hospital, every human being that ever will be born, every human being except the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, Every human being is a sinner. And therefore, God's holy law condemns everyone. And ignorance of God's law may in some quarters be seen as a manner of bliss. You've heard it, ignorance is bliss. But education about God's law brings realization of our ugly sins. And education about God's law brings a realization that we're ugly sinners. Let me tell you about toddlers. I've had two that are no longer toddlers by any stretch of the imagination. This is the toddler's creed. If I want it, it's mine. If I give it to you and change my mind later, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If it's mine and it never belongs to anyone else, no matter what, If we are building something together, all the pieces are mine, and if it looks just like mine, it is mine. That's the toddler's creed. And the holy law of God given from a holy God to a planet of rebels who are sinners, the holy law of God points out just how much we're like toddlers. Me. Me. No. Me. Mine. Give back. So let's review. The problem is not with God's law. The problem is with how we can respond to it because we have flesh. 
We've seen so far that God's law is useful. God's law is active. God's law is holy. But the fourth thing is, the law is a lethal weapon. The law is a lethal weapon. Verse 13, Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, the law of sin and death, not Moses' law. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. The law of God is a lethal weapon in the sense that it condemns us. We can't keep it. And we can't say, I kept it more than her because I didn't keep it 100%, 100% of the time, and no one did except Jesus. And so the law is a lethal weapon in the sense that it condemns us. And so if the law reveals our sin, and if the law provokes our sinning, and if the law condemns us, then isn't the law some kind of a murderer? That's the question of verse 13. That is the question of verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. The question is, If the law reveals sin, if the law provokes sinning, if the law condemns us, then isn't the law some kind of a murderer? And the answer is no. The law in no way, shape, or form is the cause of damnation. Rather, our own sin natures, our flesh, are the cause of our sinning. And it is for unatoned for sins which cause our separation from holy God, which can be a forever separation in a real place the Bible calls hell. So what I'm saying is whether you know Christ as your Savior this morning or you don't, and you know you don't, there are two ways that sin can be paid for. Either Jesus Christ's sufficient and complete blood sacrifice on the cross, you allow that to pay for your sins that the law reveals, Or you will say, I go it alone. I'll take my chances. I'll live religious. Those are the two options. If you choose to go it alone, please be advised that you will have to pay the debt you owe to God for your sins forever with a conscious torment in hell. When you die, it's not over. There's a resurrection to life, and there's a resurrection to judgment. Take Christ as Savior while you have time. You don't know that you have tomorrow. We might not be here next week. Take Christ as Savior. Repent of sin. Turn to him wholeheartedly to him in faith. Accept his finished work on the cross as being your remedy for your sin problem. Believe he rose from the dead. Trust him. He's your only hope. He's your only hope. Now please stay with me. The law is a weapon which is used by the principle of sin to spiritually kill us. The law which is good turns into a weapon when the outfit that set up a military base of operation within us prompts our flesh, our sin nature, to sin. And that's what 
is the problem. And so verse 13 again. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting death through that which is good. But through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. I saw a bumper sticker years ago in the U.S. that I thought was pretty good. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. There's nobody to pull a trigger. Nobody gets shot. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. And the Old Testament law is the weapon which the power of sin, also known as the law of sin and death, uses to spiritually kill people. And so recapping, what have we seen about the character of God's law? Oh, it's useful, and it's active, and it's holy, and it's a weapon, but there's more. There's one more thing in this text about God's law. The fifth thing is God's law is spiritual. Look at the first part of verse 14, please. God's law is spiritual. For we know that the law is spiritual. Stop at the semicolon. The law of God is spiritual. In what sense? The law of God is spiritual in that the law reflects all of God's character. The law of God makes visible all of, law, all of God's character. It's spiritual. The law of God is spiritual. The law of God reflects all that is God's character, and the law of God reflects all of God's character because the law of God opposes sin. And the law calls sin, sin. The law doesn't let you, when you sin, say that was somebody else's fault. The law of God doesn't let you blame shift responsibility that someone victimized me so I'll never be able to live holy. The law of God doesn't let you have a crutch to blame your sin on somebody else. It's like the kid who came home in grade seven with his report card, and after dinner he presented it to his daddy, and uh, the daddy looked at him and he said, five F's and two D's? Five F's and two D's? Yeah, Dad, what do we chalk it up to, environment or heredity? That's where the world's at, right? Nobody says it's my fault when it's their fault. Nobody owns up the responsibility. And the law of God is spiritual in that it says, this is God's character, and you and you alone haven't lived up to God's character. Don't blame it on your grandmother. Don't blame it on your school. Don't blame that it's hard to get a job. If you're lazy, you're lazy. And so the law of God won't allow any of us to blame shift regarding our sins. And the law of God shares the very same perfect and holy nature of God who wrote it. A holy God wrote a holy law. Therefore, the law is not in any way flawed or inconsistent or bad. How in the world will we know about our sin and about our desperate need of Jesus without the law? We'd be measuring ourselves with six-inch rulers and saying that we're 12 feet tall without the law of God giving us a 12-inch foot as a foot. 
The law is spiritual because it diagnoses our spiritual inadequacies. And the law is a wonderful spiritual mirror that we should frequently look into. And that law of God as a mirror reveals all of our blemishes, which are many. It points out all of our ways that we fall short of God. The law is also spiritual because it teaches us that the solution to our sin problem is a spiritual solution. Jesus and the Holy Spirit he's left us with as believers. And in friends, in all of these ways, the law is spiritual in its opposition to our sin and in its exposure of our sin. And so the law of God reflects the character of the lawgiver, and the law of God is spiritual. So let's wrap this up. The law's character, according to Romans 7, 7 to 14, is fivefold. There are five aspects of the law of God's character. You ready? First of all, God's law is useful. Second, God's law is active. Third, God's law is holy. Fourth, God's law is a weapon. And fifth, God's law is spiritual. Are you aware that there are folks who are physiologically sensitive to chocolate? Certain of the larger benzene compounds present in chocolate are resisted by their bodies through an allergic reaction. That's a bummer of an allergy, I'd say. Depending on the individual, this reaction to chocolate may range from very mild, producing a minor skin rash, to very severe, producing medical shock and even death. Chocolate is fatal for some persons, not because chocolate is poisonous in and of itself, but because of the biochemical makeup of their bodies. The sin in us, our sin natures, makes the law a problem to us. The law has no problem in itself. The law of God enhances the power of the law of sin and death in people, not because the law is evil, but because mankind has an evil nature. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the teaching of your word. Deliver us from thinking when we understood it, we've mastered it this morning. Help us to go far beyond understanding to obedience. Thank you for the undo-it-yourself kit for the Christian life which you've given to each of us who know you as Savior. Thank you that that undo-it-yourself kit for Christian living involves the total fulfillment of the entire Old Testament law by Jesus. Thank you that the kit includes the Holy Spirit, very God, permanently living inside the true believer. That that kit includes prayer access to you, Father, to your throne, to your ear, to your heart, to your power. Thank you that the undo-it-yourself kit for Christian living also includes your amazing grace, God. 
grace for justification, sanctification, and even glorification. Thank you that the undo-it-yourself kit for Christian living has in it a brand new identity for each believer in Jesus. This is a wonderful, Lord. This is a wonderful and more than adequate undo-it-yourself kit for Christian living. So, Lord, may we walk holy because this Holy Spirit lives in us. May we walk holy. And, Lord, for those who labor in their own so-called freedoms, but literally they're prisoners of sin because Jesus is not their Savior yet. Help us to tell them that the law of God shows you're a sinner, but the Son of God has fulfilled the law and He can be your righteousness. Make us an evangelizing congregation. Make us a sanctified congregation body of believers where the Spirit of God within us ministers the Word of God to our hearts and beyond our hearts to each other's hearts. Jesus, you've come to set us free. You've come to give us abundant life. And we would walk with you in the Spirit to live that abundant life with joy. And we pray these things in Jesus, your precious name together. Amen.